Being a Catholic, I believe in order, tenderness, and piety. May the bridges I burn light the way. Okay. Midnight Mass, I told you that already. Dad? What? What is Midnight Mass? It's midnight, you goofball. Dad? What? I'm full of sorts. It's almost an hour. You can sleep until we get there. Dad? Yes? That's a long story. Cross the bridge over the Willowmantic River heading south on Route 32. You'll see four giant stone frogs on each corner of the bridge perched atop stone spools, a nod to the thread mills along the river. Younger folks usually assume the frogs are a reference to the most recent wave of immigrants, the Coquille frog being sort of a national symbol of Puerto Rico, but it predates them by centuries. It would be a better guess that they're a reference to the French, who were the bulk of the city's population until recently, but that would be wrong as well. The real story of the frogs begins in 1754 in colonial Wyndham, Connecticut. 
Christmas had been banned a century earlier under the Puritan Blue Laws. The English governor repealed the ban a few decades later, but the holiday was still frowned upon in Wyndham in those days. Consider the province of drunks, the poor, and the Irish were usually both. Tensions ran high in Wyndham in the summer of 1754, as the outbreak of the French and Indian War and a drought left the small frontier town vulnerable on several fronts. Around midnight one night in July, a terrible sound arose from the mill pond in town, a drone of low guttural howls and the beating of drums. At first the townspeople feared the end times, but this was dismissed on the grounds that it was not daytime. They strained their ears to make sense of the howls and began convinced they heard the names of Dyer and Elderkin, two Yale-educated lawyers and leaders of the local militia. They listened further and became convinced that the voices were calling out tete-a-tete, an offer in French to negotiate the terms of surrender. The people of Wyndham became afeard, believing that the French and Indian War had come to their small town. They assumed a small army of French and Indians, or possibly both, were in the woods surrounding them. Some townspeople fled, some hid. The militia, led by Eliphet Dyer, fired their muskets into the sound until it finally subsided and the night began to break. At daylight, a scouting party sent out to the scene of the battle to assess the enemy losses, and they found the mill pond dry except for a small pool in the center, the muddy bed piled high with the corpses of bullfrogs. The drought had forced the town's entire frog population into one small pool, and the night before they'd fought a deadly battle in what remained of the mill pond. It was the wrong kind of frogs. New England persisted, but the Puritans who found it eventually began to wane. A century later, Christmas celebrations became common in the town, and it was flooded with Irish and Italian mill workers who came to work the thread mills which dominated the local economy as the Yankee farmer began to disappear. The Gaelic and the Garlic. What remained of the old Wyndham stock were now industrialists, and at the dawn of the 20th century they unleashed a second plague of frogs upon themselves. The Irish and Italians refused to work for low wages and were organized by communist agitators to strike. Rather than give in to their demands, the old stock of Wyndham went north, to Holyoke and Louis-Tone in Berlin, inviting Frenchmen to come work in their mills. The wages that made the Irishman strike seemed generous to the comparatively poor French Canadians, and again the frogs descended upon Wyndham in droves. One of them was my great-grandfather. The striking Catholics barred the door to St. Joseph's on Sunday morning, declaring the French scabs unwelcome at Mass, but they were undeterred. The Church of St. Mary was erected within months for the French workers, and to this day the two churches stare each other down on opposite sides of the street. English became a minority language in the old Puritan town. Christmas was celebrated drunkenly by low-class Papists on Main Street. A second plague. The Gaelic, the Garlic, and the Gallic. Dad. What? What's the model? Nothing, I'm just tired. Here comes Johnny, ladies and gentlemen, to remind you if every smoker knew what Philip Morris smokers know, they'd all change to Philip Morris. Yes?
some of it. C is for the Christ child Born on Christmas Day H for Herald church and she says to the priest I, you, um, you're going to pray with me and uh, you're going to kill my husband and he says I can't do that she says yes you can she says because I've been a good Catholic I have 11 children I did what God asked of me and now I want something in return she had never asked for anything but it seemed like she was a little upset with the whole thing you see and so the priest says, well, all right, but you can't promise these things, but we'll pray. She went down there, and she took him home on the train. And she stopped at the 
some place that she knew, that people that we knew, and they shaved him. And he was so tired, he had to stay there at that place for another few days. And then after that, they traveled home, and she took care of him. And my father died, he was 82. Is that right? And Isn't yeah. interesting? And after, it took him a long time. Mom says it took him almost two years before he got back on his feet. Because mm -hmm. he used to work in the, um, they call it La Drave which is a lumberjack, but you know, when the, the lumber is in the water and they have to push them on, that's oh, how they call it, that drop, yes. That was dangerous, you know. Yes, very dangerous, very hard work. And so they were talking one night and people then were starting to move away. Those people would say, well, you know, it's like you say, I had so much trouble as a young kid. It was so bad to live and we were so poor. Why not better, get a better life? And they'd hear people that used to come to uh, Rhode Island, Woonsocket, and they'd say, there's a lot of mills going up, and it's all French-speaking, and, you know, it's a good living. And so uh, they came down to see. At Christmas time, um, Santa Claus was like a no-no. It was a Jesus. It was Jesus' birthday, and that's what it was, right? In Canada, anyway. When we came over here, well, and... Um, he used to put, uh, he had stocking in the back of the stove, he used to put an orange, an apple, and a few candies, and banana, more of things that, like that, you know. And then it put a piece of coal, right? That piece of coal, it was yours, and if you were good during the year, you threw it back in the stove. It represented if you weren't good, that was the color of your heart, was black, because you went. And of course, we were all good, we all threw it back in the stove. But do you know something, if we wouldn't have been, we would have did something real wrong, that, I think it, we wouldn't have hesitated to throw it in. That, that's funny and it's silly, but that's the way it was. Now here's Dick Farley singing the song that today is everybody's favorite. Si léger, 
qui charment leurs amis. Tralala, tralala, la la la, tralala, la 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 la, tralala, tralala, la la la, tralala, la 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 la. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, they don't hang past, not even a mouse. The children been nestled, go snug on the floor, and mama passed the pepper through the crack on the dough. Then mama in the fireplace don't roast up the ham, sit up the gumbo, and make the baked yam. Then out on the bayou, they got such a clatter, may sound like old Boudreaux, don't fall off his ladder. I run like a rabbit to get to the dough, trip over the dog and fall on the floor. As I look out the dough in the light of the moon, I think, man, you crazy or got old too soon. Cooks there on the bayou when I stretch my neck stiff. There's eight alligator a pulling a skiff and a little fat drover with a long pulling stick. I know right way gotta be old Saint Nick. More faster and faster, the gator they came. He whistle and holler and call him by name. Ha Gaston, ha Tibor, ha Pierre, and I'll say, Guininette, Guy Suzette, Celeste and Rene. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Make crawl, alligator, and be sure you don't fall. Like Tom Flo's cat, through the treetop he fly. When a big old hound dog come a runner, he's by. Like that up the porch, the mole gator climb with the skiff full of toy and St. Nicholas behind. Then on top of the porch roof, it sound like the hail when them big gator done sot down they tail. Then down the chimney I yell with a bam and St. Nicholas fall and sit on a yam. Sacre, he exclaimed, my pet got a hole. I done sot myself down on them red hot coal. He got on his foot and jumped like a cat out to the floor where he land with a splat. He was dressed in muskrat from his head to his foot and his clothes is all dirty with ashes and soot. A sack full of plating he throw on his back. He looked like a burglar and that's for a fact. His eyes how they shine, his dimple how merry. Maybe he drank the wine from the blackberry. His cheek was like a rose, his nose a cherry. On second thought, maybe he lap up the sherry. With snow white chin whisker and quivering belly, he shook when he laughed like the strawberry jelly. But a wink in his eye and a shook of his head make my confidence that I don't gotta be scared. He don't do no talking, gone straight to his work, put a plating in sock and then turn with a jerk. He put both his hand there on top of his head, cast an eye on the chimney and then he done said, with all of that fire and them burning hot flame, me, I ain't going back the way that I came. So he run out the door and he climbed to the roof. He ain't no fool him for to make one more goof. He jump in his skiff and crack his big whip. The gator move down and don't make one slip. And I hear him shout loud as a splashing he go. Merry Christmas to all till I saw you some more. WTIC 1080 Hartford, celebrating 60 years as the Pulse of New England. Good evening, everyone. This is John Burchard for Mark Davis. Coming up in short order, we'll be 
opening up the phone line so that you can join us here with an open forum. And that means that you're invited to phone in on, on the topic of your own choosing on this Christmas night, 1985, in Hartford. It's 17 degrees. We have uh, 8 o'clock. Our time right now, our temperature right now is windy and cold degrees tonight. Our temperatures are flurries, lows 5 to 10 degrees tonight. Tonight can be cold degrees with a high of 16 degrees. We have a complete 10 degree weather forecast following the news. 10 degree, uh, 10 degree temperature, our temperature right now is coming up on 17 degrees. Sizzly's Mount Etna, Europe's only active volcano. Blew its top unexpectedly this Christmas Day, this uh, November 22nd, uh, rather December 22nd, and at least one man has been killed. Philip Tilly reports uh, at least uh, that there are. Telephone talk on the pulse of New England. Dial 522-0200. Silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin mother and child. So tender and mild, sleep in a heavenly peace. Sleep in a heavenly peace. Oh, Merry Christmas and bless you. <laughs>
by Donaharu Makamara from the time of the, about the time of the American Revolution. The reason I could be pretty well dated that way is that he was uh, impressed in the, into the English Navy the same time as Onru O'Sullivan, who might possibly be distantly related. We don't push it with Onru fathered innumerable illegitimate children. <laughs> and, and then he became very pious in his old age and wrote nothing but religious poetry, which is completely worthless now. <laughs> but his ballads and things were, were very good. That happens with a lot of people. You know, this uh, Ernest Dowson that wrote you know, The Days of Wine and Roses and a number of th things that I like very much. Nothing that he, after he was converted, uh, he didn't write anything you know, that is memorable or worth preserving. You know, a couple of ecstatic things about the cathedral of Chartres or something. There'll never be in an anthology. When he was a sinner, he wrote well. <laughs> Once he got religion, that ruined him. But this is, we could uh, properly slice it up, but you can see the one uh, that I referred to that's down in phonetic translation uh, is... Uh, uh, I, I sang that for the last time, a little bit of it. As I was walking one evening, fair August, mega then a kamalian. The one that takes back in Gaelic what it says in English. Well, that's the whole of it. One of the, uh, now this, I know there are examples uh, among the French. In fact, there's a lovely short story by, uh, the name that comes to mind is Daudet, but I'm not sure. It was in D.B. Wyndham Lewis's uh, Christmas and, uh, uh, but it's a story that I heard from my mother, but a different, little different version, that there was a Franciscan monastery that they, sometimes the lights in coming to the old ruins, you know, would just have an eerie look to it. They'd say, there's a priest there. He's come back. He has to come back every so often to say a mass because of, he has to do penance. And there'd be various reasons for why he had to do penance. Uh, and the story that I ran across in Day, I think it's Day, was, was much more colorful. It's uh, the man is a chaplain of a great uh, noble family, and, and he's uh, saying the three, in the, the old tradition from uh, medieval times up until just, you know, ten years ago, a priest could say three masses on Christmas Day, and if he was a chaplain somewhere, he was supposed to. Not only he could, but he should say them. So he'd say one right after another, three masses. And the story is that he he's saying mass, and partway through the first mass, there's some cooks and waiters and so on coming in from the kitchen, opening the door, and catching about five minutes of the mass, and then going back to their work. And the aroma of the réveillon, I think the French call it, the aroma of this great feast is coming to the priest, and he starts speeding up. And then through the second mass, he just goes like hell. And he's, a, he's a real, apparently a real gourmet. And the third mass, he goes so fast that he has sinned grievously. And he had, so he has to come back you know, every year for a thousand years or something. <laughs> come back and say, say mass to do penance. upon the wing A 
southern home waits their returning Ah, to be such a lucky thing Nobody cares where I am going And I don't remember where I've been I was young and had a reason It's made up of some glorious voices. These are people of the town of Litchfield. Yes, they are, yes. Well, since it has become a great part of your life, possibly you could describe it, I'm sure, better than I. Well, you've properly described it as uh, late colonial architecture. Uh, it is considerably more elaborate than much of colonial architecture uh, would be. It has, of course, uh, the uh, high columns, the beautiful uh, uh, ornate uh, portico, the uh, slender, uh, magnificent spire, uh, the, the massive form of the, uh, of the total building, and yet, uh, uh, though uh, relatively ornate, it has great simplicity and beauty and a feeling of unity. In keeping with the traditional churches of New England and most especially the congregational churches. Very, very much so, yes. Now, when was this congregation established and when was this church built? Well, this congregation uh, was uh, founded in 1721. Uh, it was, of course, the first act of the town of Litchfield. Uh, the first entry in the town records uh, concerns the calling of the minister, of a minister, and the establishment of a church. And the pulpit is most unusual and unique. It is a very uh, unusual pulpit, uh, of course, high. These uh, uh, New England settlers were largely Calvinist in their uh, theology, and they put great stress upon uh, the hearing of the Word of God, so they felt that the pulpit should be high, lofty, and uh, uh, that all should be able to hear what the, the preacher was saying in his interpretation of, of Holy Scripture. Well, now, this evening, Mr. Morgan, as you conduct the service for Christmas Eve, I presume that you've selected something already from the Scripture, from the Gospel. What is your choice? It's the... Uh, the Christmas story as it comes to us in the Gospel according to St. Luke. today's program, the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen will deliver the tenth in a series of 16 addresses under the general title, One Lord, One World. The choir of the Church of the Blessed Sacrament, New York City, under the direction of Warren Foley, will provide appropriate music. This afternoon, led by curiosity and good company, I strolled away to Mother Church, or rather Grandmother Church, 
I mean the Romish chapel. I heard a good, short moral essay upon the duty of parents to their children, founded in justice and charity, to take care of their interests, temporal and spiritual. This afternoon's entertainment was to me most awful and affecting, the poor wretches fingering their beads, chanting Latin, not a word of which they understood, their paternosters and avenarias, their holy water, their crossing themselves perpetually, their bowing to the name of Jesus, whenever they hear it, their bowings, kneelings and genuflections before the altar, the dress of the priest was rich white lace, his pulpit was velvet and gold, the altarpiece was very rich, little images and crucifixes about, wax candles lighted up, but how shall I describe the picture of our Saviour, in a frame of marble over the altar, at full length, upon the cross in the agonies, and the blood dropping and streaming from his wounds, the music, consisting of an organ and the choir of singers, went all the afternoon except sermon time, and the assembly chanted most sweetly and exquisitely, here is everything which can lay hold of, the eye here, and imagination everything which can charm and bewitch the simple and ignorant. I wonder how Luther ever broke the spell. fish. You know, this is the favorite food of the Italian people, especially on uh, Christmas, the day before Christmas, Christmas Eve. Uh, from 7 o'clock when I was a kid, we sit down at the table at 7 o'clock, we eat from 7 till midnight, then we go to midnight mass, when we get home, mom and dad would have a slavasta, we'd have a little chicken. Would you like uh, la piguera, uh, Grace? La piguera, sure. Okay. Oh God, for this food, for each one of us present. For every one of your creatures, we thank you on behalf of Jesus Christ our Lord and Father. 
Amen. 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 up in Providence, Rhode Island in what was an Italian ghetto. I did not know I lived in a ghetto. All I knew was that everyone around me spoke Italian, or rather some southern dialect, and everyone ate endless variations of pasta and things that Americans would never eat like squid. I remember the processions in the streets with the statue of the saint being carried by men in special and colorful dress, and marching bands and many altar boys, priests in their cassocks, the pinning of dollar bills and the statue as offerings for the poor, the smell of food in the carts in the street waiting to be devoured, the old nanas dressed in black with their fans, the eyes of those who came from Italy moist with a remembrance of the towns and villages where they came from, the children whose minds were being filled with memories of sight and smell and sound. I was an onlooker in all of this, not a participant. My family were Protestant. Both of my grandfathers who grew up as Catholics in Italy became Protestant at some time in their lives, and like all Italian Protestants, they were violently anti-Catholic. My family always made fun of these festas and the, the processions. They declared it as an example of idolatry and pagan superstition. And thank God they've been delivered from the debased form of Christianity called Catholicism. To try as they could, they could not wash out that cultural Catholicism from their lives. For the food they ate, the language they spoke, the customs they observed were all derived from the Catholic faith with which they had grown up. But the opposition to public feasts did not come only from a handful of Italian Protestants. It came from the Protestant soul of this country, where religion was understood as a private matter, involved going to church on Sunday, and that was it. But the opposition to street Catholicism came also from the Catholic hierarchy at that time. The Irish hierarchy, especially of New York, certainly were strangers to processions and such things because of the religious situation in Ireland, which ironically forced them to assimilate the Protestant attitude towards the sacred and the profane. The hierarchy had made their peace with the Protestant soul of this country, and so they were disturbed by these displays of religion outside of the church building, where the sacred and profane were on display for all to see, and especially in this its Italian-American immigrant form, which was not always, shall we say, in the best of taste. The San Gennaro Festival began as a lay initiative in which the owners of local cafes organized a small festival in honor of the saint. It grew to something that was an integral part of the life of New York City, and it was always that promiscuous mixture of the sacred and the profane that at once repelled and fascinated those who came to Little Italy to take part in their own way in this singular event. And yet by the time of the 1970s, 
This festival taken on the dark undertones that Martin Scorsese depicted in his wonderful film Mean Streets. Where organized crime in the form of small-time Italian hoods are not merely involved with the festival, but more importantly, already did not understand its roots and its meaning for the first and second generation immigrants. The irony is that the popularity of the San Gennaro Festival undermined that ethnic culture that understood the sacred roots of these traditions and the relationships between family and religion and food. The destruction of the ethnic Catholic culture, whether it be Italian or German or French or even Hispanic in this country, is being diluted at a dizzying pace as we speak. It's part of why contemporary Catholicism in this country is often a pale imitation of a secular culture, although an appreciation for upholding basic moral norms. And that is not merely a cultural problem. This is a spiritual problem. My Italian heritage is a deep part of the person I am, but I fully recognize that the Catholic faith transcends ethnic culture. That's what Catholic means. We cannot bring back the peculiar integration of family, religion, and food that marked ethnic cultures of the past. But we must never forget what bound all these ethnic cultures was the Mass we are celebrating here today. The Mass is a dissolution of the many cultures for two millennia, and therefore is a fertile womb even in our secular culture for the reflowering of Catholic culture. The Mass is the antidote to the decomposition of Catholicism into a porridge fit only for a baby with no taste. Let us ask the intercession of San Gennaro that the bishops and priests of the Church come to understand the love of the Mass as the soil in which the Catholic Church will reflower and fill the whole world with that peculiar fragrance that is a mixture of sausage and peppers and costly ointment with which Mary Magdalene anointed Jesus' feet. Emil, wake up. We're at church. Christmas yet? It's Christmas.
这。